Hello, welcome to the Live to 110 podcast. My name is Wendy Myers, and you can find me at livetoone110.com, and you can find this video podcast on the corresponding YouTube channel at Wendy Live to 110. And today, a little uh, change of scenery here. We're hosting the podcast in my home in Silver Lake, and uh, this is the, the back house of my property. And just thought I'd use a little change of scenery, you know, keep it interesting. Uh, but today we're hosting Dr. William Walsh on the podcast. Um, he's the author of Nutrient Power, uh, who uses nutrients, hair mineral analysis, and other means to overcome mental health issues. And I've been waiting months to get him on the podcast, so I'm so excited to do the interview today. He's so brilliant, and I know you're going to love today's show. Um, but pl please keep in mind that this program is not intended to diagnose or treat any disease or health condition and is not a substitute for professional medical advice. Please keep in mind that this program is for informational purposes only, uh, so please consult your healthcare practitioner before engaging in any treatment or protocol that we suggest today on the show. And I'm really, really thrilled. I have so many interesting projects going on, um, but my favorite one right now is uh, I'm launching my new supplement line called Bio Rehab. And the flagship product is going to be called Liver Rehab Plus. Um, it's going to be a liver cleanse and detox formula that will be available on Amazon, hopefully by the time this podcast airs. So keep a lookout for that on Amazon. It's Liver Rehab Plus by Bio Rehab, my new supplement line. I'm so thrilled to announce that. That will, and pretty soon we'll have a whole line, a complete line of supplements, uh, eventually an entire line that will help balance the imbalances on a hair mineral analysis. This has been a, a dream of mine for many years, um, so I'm thrilled that it's finally come to fruition and will soon be available. I'll be sure to keep you posted. Our guest today is Dr. William Walsh, PhD. He's the president of the nonprofit Walsh Research Institute and is an internationally recognized expert in the field of nutritional medicine and a key scientist paving the way for nutrition-based psychiatry and nutritional medicine. Over the past 30 years, Dr. Walsh has developed biochemical treatments for patients and um, biochemical treatments for patients diagnosed with behavioral disorders, attention deficit, hyperactivity disorder, autism, clinical depression, anxiety, bipolar disorders, schizophrenia, and Alzheimer's disease that are used by doctors throughout the world. His book, Nutrient Power, Heal Your Biochemistry and Heal Your Brain, describes the evidence-based nutrient therapy system that he has developed. Dr. Walsh's noted accomplishments include groundbreaking studies reporting reduced violent behavior following nutrient therapy, the 1999 discovery of undermethylation and copper-zinc imbalances in autism, the 2000 finding of metallothionine protein depletion in autism, the 2007 published study linking copper overload and postpartum depression, the identification of five biochemical subtypes of clinical depression, and the 2011 of the Walsh theory of schizophrenia and the direction of the Beethoven Research Project that developed, uh, revealed the composer suffered from severe lead poisoning. It's very interesting to me being a piano player. Uh, Beethoven's one of my favorite composers. Um, in addition to Dr. Walsh's ongoing research studies, he leads medical practitioner training programs in advanced drug-free biochemical nutrient therapies in Australia, Ireland, Norway, the U.S., and other countries. Dr. Walsh is a frequently invited guest lecturer, having more, given more than 200 presentations uh, and at international conferences and symposiums, including the American Psychiatric Association, the 
U.S. Senate, the National Institutes of Mental Health. He's offered numerous peer-reviewed journal articles and scientific reports, as well as been granted five patents. After earning degrees uh, from Notre Dame and the University of Michigan, Dr. Walsh received a Ph.D. in chemical engineering from Iowa State University. While working um, as an Argonne National Laboratory in the 1970s, Dr. Walsh organized a prison volunteer program that led to studies of prisoner and ex-offenders researching the causes of their violent behavior. The collaboration with renowned, uh, the late renowned Dr. Carl C. Pfeiffer, uh, a pioneer in the field of nutritional research therapy, led by Dr. Walsh to the development of individual nutrient protocols to normalize body chemistry and brain chemistry. Dr. Walsh went on to study more than 30,000 patients with mental disorders, acquiring an unparalleled database of more than 3 million chemical assays during his clinical and research work. Dr. Walsh has conducted chemical analysis of more than 25 serial killers and mass murderers, including Dr. Charles, not Dr., <laughs> including Charles Manson, Richard Speck, James Oliver Huberty, uh, Patrick Sherrill, and Arthur Shawcross. He has assisted medical examiners, coroners, the Scotland Yard, and the FBI in these forensic studies. Um, he has designed nutritional programs for Olympic athletes, NBA players, Major League Baseball players, heavyweight boxing champions, PGA golfers, and many, many others. That was the longest bio I have ever read. <laughs> but I wanted to read all of it to exemplify to you all of this man's extraordinary accomplishments. Dr. Walsh, thank you so much for coming on the show. Well, it's my pleasure. Well, why don't you tell the listeners a little bit about yourself and uh, you know how you got into methylation and hair mineral analysis and writing your book, Nutrient Power? Well, for me, it all started uh, when I was working as a scientist at Argonne National Laboratory, and I was uh, got involved as a prison volunteer. And I found myself dealing with people who, who were on death row, people who were stateful penitentiary. And um, within a rather short time, I found myself the head of a group of uh, 125 volunteers doing the kind of do-gooder things people do in prisons. And uh, along the way, uh, we started an ex-offender program, and I got to meet the families that had produced a criminal. And that's when my education really began, because I, 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 I had always thought that people that were criminals were that way because of, of some kind of a flawed upbringing or their life experiences. And I kept meeting occasional just wonderful families who seemed to have done everything right, and they had other siblings, other children who were just fine, upstanding citizens, and yet this one person had done a really horrible thing or a number of crimes and they told me that they, that this um, future criminal was different from the time he was about six or eight months old that it happened so early and they were just very troubled by this child and uh, even though they seemed to do everything right so I began to ask what's the real cause the real reason for behavior disorder and at that time, since I was at a national laboratory, I started diving into the literature and science. And that's how it really started. And I got, um, I, I started doing studies, um, in, the, in the beginning, a lot of it was hair analysis, by the way. And I was studying um, hair, hair, blood, and urine um, from ex-convicts and prison residents. And um, I, um, at one point, Dr. Carl Pfeiffer, if you're familiar with who he is, uh, the great man uh, who was probably at that time, back in the, in the 1970s, was considered the world's 
best earlying uh, nutritional scientist and nutritional doctor. He was an MD, PhD. And uh, when I first met him, he had just been nominated for a Nobel Prize, mm -hmm. which he did not get. It uh, turns out that, that Linus Pauling had and nominated him. Anyway, uh, he got interested in my work, and actually we collaborated for 12 years. And I started sending him criminals. We, I would, we would take a plane to Princeton, New Jersey, and I would bring in criminals fresh out of prison. And anyway, we started studying the biochemistry. He started developing treatment programs. And then uh, after, after by 1988, we had, we had done about 500 people together, 500 cases of violent people. And what we learned was that the criminals would get really better for about a year or two. And then about five years later, we find out they were back in prison. Mm. But when we look at violent children, children with the same chemistry, even you know the really super violent sociopathic kids, it seemed to be enduring for them. They would get better and they would stay better. And we think that it has a lot to do with, um, once they get into drugs and alcohol, it's a lot harder to help someone like that. And also, I think their 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 self image gets ingrained after they've been, you know, acting like monsters for fifteen or twenty years. So then, our focus has been on children ever since. Then, uh, while we were working with these kids, we found out that about half of the behavior disorder kids also had attention deficit and had academic problems. And lo and behold, not only did their behavior improve, but their academics improved. So along the way. Uh, Carl Pfeiffer, during one of my visits, said to me two or three times, he said, you know, Bill, what we really need is an outpatient clinic in the Midwest for behavior and learning. And eventually I realized he meant me. Mm -hmm. And so uh, I founded a not-for-profit public charity, and we opened a, a clinic we called the Pfeiffer Treatment Center. We named it after Carl Pfeiffer because he died just before we opened it. He was actually going to be our doctor for the first six months. He was going to do the actual treatment programs in the beginning, but he died of a heart attack just before that. So that's how I got started. And so uh, one thing led to another, and here it is uh, many years later, and our, our, the, clinical, the clinic I worked with, we saw eventually 30,000 patients. Yeah. And I think I have the world's biggest chemistry database for, certainly for autism. I think I've seen as many autistics as anybody in the world, 6,500 cases seen more than 3,000 cases of schizophrenia, uh, 10,000 cases of behavior disorder. That's the largest group we've seen. And anyway, um, plowing into the science, uh, after Pfeiffer died and after Ibram Hoffer died, another person we were fairly close to, uh, we started developing, um, developing our um, advanced therapies. I, I kind of think of it, I did what I think Pfeiffer and Hoffer would have done if they were still alive. And so I've done quite a bit of research. I worked on some NIH programs, um, uh, a number of university studies. In fact, right now I'm, I'm just starting a schizophrenia study. We're looking at DNA methylation and the epigenetics of schizophrenics. And for the first time, uh, we're going to be looking at uh, the actual different types of schizophrenia. See, there's been a lot of studies like this for schizophrenia, but it turns out that schizophrenia is not a single disease. It's a name given to at least three major different types of schizophrenia. We've also found there's more than five types of depression, even though mainstream medicine tends to treat uh, all these depressed people as having low serotonin activity, and, and almost anywhere in the world, if you're depressed, 
and you go to a psychiatrist, they'll start you on SSRI mm-hmm. antidepressants. Um, and what there are five completely different types of depression. And I reported that uh, about a, about a year, about 14 months ago, at the annual meeting of the American Psychiatric Association, the big meeting of psychiatrists, and there were 17,000 people, psychiatrists all in one room, in one building. And anyway, that went over really well. And a number of the psychiatrists there uh, followed me out of the hall and and actually went to our physician training programs. Well, the Fight for Treatment Center no longer exists. That's a long story I don't want to get into. But and about seven years ago, I founded the Walsh Research Institute, another uh, another not-for-profit public charity. And uh, we have three major activities. Number one, uh, we have an international physician training program. We train doctors from throughout the world. A lot of this uh, has been in Australia, and I've seen lots of people in you know, Southeast Asia. Uh, in the last, I think, 15 months, we've trained 95 doctors in the USA, and uh, we started just, we've just begun, that's our most recent program, is that USA training, and we think we might double that uh, in, in the, next, the, next, the next program we do, and I've been in Training doctors in Norway, we've been in Ireland, and anyway, there's a lot of countries, so we got we've got a lot, a lot of work to do. Yeah, <laughs> that's part of what we do, and we do we do research. I'm I'm constantly um, asking the question: What is the cause of autism? What is the cause of a behavior disorder? What's going on in the brain? And I guess I've become a, a brain scientist, and I and I I really for the last. 10 or 15 years, I've just focused on neurotransmitters, how they function, what can go wrong, and what kind of treatments can can we do to help these people. And so that's where I am now. And um, I'd say I spend about 40% of my time on research, and then uh, and then the, the rest training doctors. And then the other thing we do is we, as a charity, we, we provide information for the public, and, and um, so we try to educate people on nutrition, and you know, nutrient therapies. Can you tell me? Well, a, a, yeah, I read your book Nutrient Power, and it was really a, just a fantastic book. Uh, can you tell us, kind of in layman terms, what your book is about? Well, I, I spent a lot of time trying to decide what the title would be, and I finally decided that the message I wanted to get across, if there was any message at all, uh, is nutrient power. That nutrients can be powerful. I've worked with a lot of doctors who would call and say, I've got this patient I've worked with, and now they've gone to your clinic, and now they're better. Can you tell me what you did? And then when I would explain to them that um, I would talk about originally about the chemical imbalances in the blood and urine testing. and But then when I eventually they would say, well, what was your treatment? What did you do? And the answer is, well, the weapons we use are nutrients, amino acids, vitamins, and minerals. And what a lot of them would say is, well, that couldn't possibly work. <laughs> possibly yeah. help a schizophrenic or an autistic or, or a, suicide, a suicidal patient with nutrients. Don't, don't you really need? Don't you really need a powerful drug to get the job done? And the answer is no. So in my book, um, which is called Nutrient Power, uh, I wanted to get the message across that yes, nutrients can have have a lot of power, and they have power in, in four major areas. Number one, the question you might say is, where do our neurotransmitters come from? Where do we get serotonin? Where do we get dopamine, norepinephrine? Well, most of these key neurotransmitters are made in the brain. The brain's neurotransmitters are made in the brain. We know, that, and we know exactly how they're made. And the raw materials, the ingredients, 
amino acids, vitamins, and minerals. So if a person is born with some kind of an abnormal level, either too little or too much of a key nutrient that you need to make serotonin, for example, then you can expect a problem with your brain function. And then, then we have this, this uh, new science called epigenetics. Epigenetics has a lot to do with, with, brain, with brain function and has a lot to do with reuptake of neurotransmitters. And this has all been revealed really in about the last five or six years. And, and now we can do something in nutrient therapy we couldn't do until the last five years. For the first time, we have a way to, to change and, and regulate enzymes. We've never been able to do that before. And the enzymes very often are the most critical part of a mental problem. And um, for example, we now know which nutrients are serotonin reuptake inhibitors and can be used either together with an SSRI antidepressant or, or maybe alone without it. Uh, they, we also know that oxidative stress and oxidative overload is, a, is part of virtually every mental illness we ever study. And so nutrients can have great power in alleviating that. If you've got a problem with oxidative overload, you're going to have a problem with GABA, and you're going to have a problem with your NMDA receptor that is so important in, in severe mental illness. So nutrients have great power, and uh, I, I did my best in the book to, to make that clear. I wrote the book really aiming at both the professionals and scientists, but also the general public. And um, it's got, we've gotten a very good response from it. So do heavy metals play a role in mental illness? I, mean, I know that they do, but I wonder what your take is on that. Well, heavy metals, uh, um, heavy metals can be very damaging, and especially mercury, lead, and cadmium are, are the three that I think are the most damaging, and we, the ones we see most commonly. There are uh, hundreds of thousands of schizophrenics in, in the United States who simply have toxic metals as a problem. Um, they're, they're, um, the the problem is that some people are vulnerable to toxic metals and others are not. Most people have a, have a wonderful set of natural antioxidant chemicals like glutathione, metallothionine, selenium, on and on. And, and if a person is completely healthy and normal and doesn't have mutations, sick mutations in these, in these things, uh, in, these, in these enzymes and these chemicals that protect us, well then some people are really vulnerable. For example, autistic kids are extraordinarily vulnerable. I've tested, as I said, more than 6,000 of them, and every blessed one of them, if they're accurately diagnosed, has got, has got great difficulty with, with antioxidant protection. They're, they're just overloaded. And I think that's probably what triggered, more than anything else, what triggered the disease in the first place. So, yeah, toxic metals can be very damaging. Now, if, if, if we have a proper healthy system, you could, you could say today have, uh, let's say you had lunch and had a, a large portion of tuna or something with mercury in it. Well, the mercury that, that you ingested, about 90% of it is supposed to be stopped by your intestinal barrier. And, and, and it's really the metallophionine protein and the glutathione that really is a barrier for it. And so you have about 10% of it makes it into your liver. And in the liver, again, metallothionine and glutathione and other natural uh, uh, antioxidants probably take another 95% of it and disable it. And then the little tiny bit, maybe a percent, 
but it's still circulating in your blood, might try to access the brain. Well, it has to pass the blood-brain barrier. And again, you have these antioxidant protectors. So the average person could actually get quite a bit of mercury in their system and, and, and would be fine. But some people, for example, autistic children, who, who are very vulnerable and don't have those protections, uh, a little bit of mercury can cause a devast- have a devastating effect on them. So it depends on the individual. Some people are dramatically sensitive, others are not. The, the very first study I did uh, experimentally when I was back at Argonne National Laboratory, I did a sibling study of, of violent children. And I found 24 families that had a very violent assault of a young man, and in the same family, the all-American boy, a child who had just great behavior and good academics. And when we studied the, the lab results, the first thing we saw was even though they're living in the same environment, breathing the same air, the same general diet, and even going to the same school, uh, the violent kids had much, much higher levels of lead and cadmium, about three or four times higher. That's across 24 different families, 24 different homes. Well, that was that was probably the very first thing that we were found with experimental work. And, and what that illustrates is that some people are very vulnerable to toxic metals, and others uh, can sort of sail through it. Don't criminals typically have a higher level of manganese as well? Not really. That no. was reported because of somebody who interpreted my data improperly. Oh. It's kind of a long story. <laughs> but what happened was I was challenged by the University of California, Irvine, Department of Psychiatry. And there was a, a wealthy oil man that was going to donate money for, for our research in this area. And they said, well, don't do that. It's, it's got to be a scam or it doesn't work. So they didn't ex- we put together an experiment where they sent me, in this case, hair samples. They sent me something like 200 hair samples, and they were all coded. And they, they challenged me, to, based on the chemistry, to tell them which ones were the criminals mm-hmm. and which ones were not. <laughs> okay? I succeeded at about a 95% accuracy. Uh, they then got this data. And I, they, I, I gave them all the data, and uh, what happened was the, they had a guy, in fact, he's a famous researcher, and I won't mention his name, but they sent him to the prison to start taking hair samples from these, from these desperados. And uh, he, I told him he had to use a stainless steel scissors and to, to avoid any metal contamination. Well, he had those big scissors, and he, after he took the first two samples, he got scared to death and decided he wasn't going to do that anymore but he was afraid they'd attack him with the scissors. So uh, he went downtown, bought a, a razor. He bought a shaver. Okay? So a lot of the samples I had had um, shavers, had a soft wheel and a hard wheel, yeah. and, and it was manganese, ah. the shaver. And so what I got were sam- some of the samples I had to throw out because they had little needles of iron and manganese in them. Yeah. Well... But when, the, when these other people in California got the data, they found, wow, manganese is really very high in these people. I tried to explain to them, no, it's not true. But there's been a number of peer-reviewed journal articles about manganese. Uh, That's not true. Well, thank you for clearing that up. <laughs> it's a long, slug explanation, yeah. sorry. But no, I don't think manganese is quite that important. No, manganese is an important nutrient. And manganese actually lowers dopamine activity. Mm. So if you if a person had too much manganese, they they might have a problem with lower dopamine. Okay, that's very interesting. 
Yeah, so let's talk about uh, you know your main game, methylation. Um, what exactly is over and under methylation? Okay, methylation is a very important biochemical factor in the body, and uh, I've, I've evaluated 30,000 patients with respect to methylation going back 30 years. And really, I was taught this originally from Carl Pfeiffer and Abram Hoffer, who, who uh, they, they used to call, they used to think it had to do with histamine abnormalities, but really it was methylation. And um, methyl has an extraordinary importance in human beings. And, and, and it's probably the most important aspect of it is, is actually epigenetics, that which is gene regulation. In the womb, when a tiny baby, when a tiny fetus is formed and begins to develop, uh, during that first couple months, um, the, as, as, as this little tiny baby develops into arms and legs and you know, all the different organs and differentiates, uh, there's a problem because every part of your body needs different chemicals. And, uh, and, and, and of course, some of the important ones are these genetically expressed chemicals. We've all got about 23,000 genes in our body, in our DNA, and every gene's only got one job, and that's to make a protein. But you need different proteins in your liver and your, you know, your skin and your kidneys. And what happens, it's almost magical, but during early development, methyl, mark, methyl attaches to certain parts of the DNA and basically shuts off the unwanted chemicals. So every part of your body if everything goes well, you'll have the right mix of chemicals coming into different parts of your body. Now, it's all done with methylation. So if a person is under-methylated or over-methylated, they got too little or too much methyl in that in utero environment, then these are people who are going to have major problems. We know that if a person, um, um, if a person is folate deficient, female is folate deficient, the incidence of spinal bifida is, is far higher. We also recently found out, based on work by Jill James and others, that same is true of autism. If, if, a, if a woman is, uh, if there's an under-methylated environment, and if this person needs fully normalized methyl, then that, that greatly enhances the likelihood of autism. We now know that virtually all autistics are under-methylated. And I was the one that discovered that. I discovered that in year 1999. Yeah. And and all this, I, I, I first revealed that to a, a, at a think tank that Dr. Rimland had for, I think we had 75 researchers and clinicians from around the world at this meeting. And he knew that I had more more data and seen more autistics than anybody, so he asked me to come and tell him what I found. And I told him, well, they all have a mental metabolism disorder. They, they have dysfunction with respect to copper and zinc. Well, they all knew that. They already knew that. I mentioned that they all were had extraordinary oxidative stress. We already knew that. I mentioned they tended to be really high in mercury, lead, and cadmium. They knew that. Then I told them that more than 95% of them were under-methylated. And they all said, what? No, no one had ever connected methylation with, with autism or really with other mental disorders. Yeah, I read that on Dr. Mensa's website, who I also interviewed on the podcast, who's your colleague. And uh, read that women who are under-methylators have a higher incidence of children born with autism. My heart sank yes. because my daughter developed autism, uh, you know, discovered yeah. about three years. I'm an under-methylator, 
and she discovered it, you know, I discovered it around three years of age. But uh, fortunately, I was able to, you know, uh, heal her and reverse her autism using nutrient therapy guided by hair mineral analysis. And she's completely normal today. All her testing is normal. Uh, she we hadn't discovered it until she was six. She was still having a problem today. Yeah, early I know. Everything. Yeah, early intervention is key, and I was very, very fortunate to uh, finally wake up that something wasn't correct. But definitely um, injecting her with vaccines that contain aluminum, which is a neurotoxin, I think was the yeah. straw that broke the camel's back that pushed her, you know, this child that's not able to methylate property and detox, uh, pushed her over the edge into finally into autism. I'm getting that diagnosis. Basically, some of the major behavior disorders involve methylation abnormalities. For example, we've tested people like Charles Manson and and famous famous criminals and, and again, 10,000 behavior disordered people. And a high percentage of them have a methylation imbalance. In in most cases, if they're oppositional and defiant and strong-willed, they're usually under-methylated. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And... um, and, and that has a, a major effect after they're born. It's not just the way these methyl, methyl bookmarks that regulate your genes. Uh, it's all, it also has an effect on, on functioning. And we're able to, there are nutrient therapies that can do a nice job of improving methylation. And another thing is that since methyl now has a lot to do with gene expression, it has a lot to do with neurotransmitter reuptake. And that's the, that's the part that confuses most people. We know that, that um, folic acid, all these other kinds of folate, whether it's deplin, methylfolate, or folic acid, we know that folic acid plus B12 is, is absolutely the best way to improve methylation in an undermethylated person. We know that. And, and that's, that's the, uh, nice the gold standard treatment for undermethylation. However, there's one exception. There's one group that get worse on it, and those are undermethylated people who have low activity at serotonin receptors. So these low serotonin undermethylated people, if you give them folates, they get worse. And we've seen that more than a thousand times. Mm-hmm. And it's kind of counter- counterintuitive. And what happens if you give them the folates of any of these types, regardless of whether it's deplin or whatever, uh, they will usually get dramatically worse, and the reason is epigenetics. The what happens if you if you if you uh, uh, give them folic acid? Folic acid is uh, strips methyl off of chromatin. That is the DNA where the DNA and the, and the DNA proteins are. Um, it, it actually takes the methyl away. But in other words, if you if you have an undermethylated person and they let's say they have suicidal depression. And, and they're undermethylated, and maybe they do well on Prozac or Paxil. Uh, if you give them folates, what will happen is their methylation will get better, and the patient will get worse. So that's the exception to the rule. We uh, in autism, fortunately, very few autistics have a serotonin issue, and so so uh, folate methyl B12 therapy works beautifully for most of them. Occasionally, you get a really nasty response from it, and those are the autistic kids. Who were headed for depression. And so, uh, how do you determine your methylation status? What is the, the gold standard for determining your status? Well, I don't know if it's the gold standard, but it's what we do. Um, there, there are two lab tests that are quite good. Um, and, and one of them is the SAMI, S A H, 
studies. There are, for the last eight or nine years now, there's a commercial test that can measure S-adenosylmethionine, which we call SAMI. And what that is basically is activated methionine. All of our methyl comes from, from protein, specifically methionine, methionine protein. And it becomes SAMI in, in this complicated one-carbon cycle that people are, nutritionists are always studying and scratching their head trying to understand. And um, what happens is that um, that the, the the way to improve methylation is is um, is not as important as reuptake. And a lot there's a lot of nutritional people who are doing 23andMe and they do the genetic studies and they and they say, hey, we've got an MTHFR. T677T uh, homozygous or heterozygous. Okay. We've got these SNPs and these weaknesses. So they, they, they conclude then that the patient is undermethylated and they want to throw methylfolate at them and maybe, and maybe methyl B12. Well, uh, they may not be undermethylated. And the reason is that um, there are SNPs and mutations that can cause overmethylation. And really, there's a tug of war between the, the, the SNPs that tend to lower methylation, like the MTHFR and methionine synthase and a few others, and then those that tend to enhance methylation, like the AGAT, and there's a few of them. And, and uh, the problem is that you cannot decisively determine a methyl, the methyl status with a genetic test. Not yet. I think eventually we'll be able to. Not yet. And most people that are trying to do this are only looking, are only looking for undermethylation, and are not aware that so many people are overmethylated. Twenty-two um, percent of Americans, as far as my data, I've got this huge database um, of millions and millions of blood and urine studies. Um, about twenty-two percent of Americans are undermethylated, and about eight percent are overmethylated. And in terms of mental health, mental illness, seventy uh, percent of all people with depression have a methylation disorder. Yeah. Some of them are under most. I'd say those are probably is three to one under methylation versus over methylation. Yeah, I understand. But, is I, I suffered from depression in my entire twenties, and it was only when I began doing a nutrient therapy that I was able to to kick it finally. Yeah, and um, so the, one of the keys is biochemical individuality. And, and so we've developed a couple things that have been, over the years, we eventually learned some important things. For example, with respect to the brain and mental health, uh, even though there are hundreds and hundreds of nutrient factors that are really important in the body, there are only about five or six or seven that dominate mental health. And those are the very nutrients that are either directly involved in the synthesis of a neurotransmitter or the regulation of a neurotransmitter. And so, so fortunately, we don't need to do chemical studies or, or lab studies uh, looking for a hundred different chemicals. We we have a nice protocol that that focuses on the six or seven most important ones, and we know that if we if we find imbalances in them and we correct them, most of our patients are going to get nicely better. Yeah, yeah I was that, surprised. Yeah, I've had a, well, a few of my clients that try your protocol. And I was surprised by how few nutrients you do use in your protocols. Yeah, and um, sometimes there's only one one imbalance. For example, we've done um, we've studied more than 700 cases of postpartum depression, 
And we find that well over 95% of them have a single imbalance, and it is unregulated, extraordinarily high copper levels. They don't have the ability to homeostatically regulate copper. And, and the way that's supposed to be regulated is with metallothionine, which is a genetically expressed enzyme, but that can have SNPs and mutations and can be weakened, just like MTHFR. So there's those people, uh, what happens when a woman gets pregnant is that not only does estrogen shoot up, but their copper level more than doubles. A typical woman uh, before pregnancy would have a level of 100 micrograms per deciliter of copper in her blood, and by the time the pregnancy is completed, it'd be over 220. And that's, that's the average, and the, and the little baby needs that for growth. It's called, it's, it, you need it for angiogenesis, uh, for, for rapid development of new blood vessels, which of course a, a growing fetus needs. Problem is that these women, then maybe, for the, maybe they, they, they love children and never had depression, and they get pregnant, and then as soon as the baby is born, they might have severe depression, and in many cases, postpartum psychosis. We've seen a lot of those cases. And what we've learned, and what we published in the peer review journal, is uh, that it generally is related to copper. And the reason is, <coughs> excuse me, that we now know that the, the, the synthesis of norepinephrine, one of the most important neurotransmitters, it all comes from dopamine. And this all reaction happens in your brain. And, and, the, and the reaction of dopamine transforming into norepinephrine, the, there's an enzyme that's important, but there's also what the, the, the major cofactor is copper, divalent copper, copper plus plus. And, and um, there have been animal studies showing that if you starve an animal of copper, so they only have 25% of the normal amount of copper in their blood, the ratio of norepinephrine to dopamine can vary by as much as a factor of three or a factor of four. Gigantic differences. So these people tend to have lower dopamine, which is a feel-good neurotransmitter. They tend to have extraordinarily high norepinephrine and adrenaline, and that's that's a recipe for anxiety and depression. Yeah. And so that's a, that's an example. And you test for a histamine as well, correct, to determine methylation status? Yes, we do. Uh, we've been using uh, histamine analysis really for 35 years. And the reason is that histamine and, methyl and, and, methyl and methylation are inverse. Histamine in, 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 the, in cells and in your brain, uh, your histamine is regulated by, by methylation. So if a person is really high in histamine, it, it's associated with under-methylation. There's a nice general uh, relationship that, that is really very good. It's not a perfect analysis because you have to take into account any medications a person might be taking that that are uh, that, that might lower histamine levels in blood. Um, but the, the really good news is that after doing this for thousands and thousands and thousands of patients and doing medical history, we, we've learned that there are symptoms and traits associated with undermethylation and with overmethylation. So after we do a medical history of a patient, maybe be with them for an hour and ask them all the right questions, we can predict their, their blood, blood results with about 95% accuracy. For example, 95%, um, I'm sorry, 75% of all undermethylated people have uh, seasonal allergies. 
grass, ragweeds, that sort of thing. 25% do not. Overmethylated people are the opposite. Very few of them, maybe about 5 or 10% have seasonal allergies, but they are prone to food and chemical sensitivities. Uh, so that's one example. People who are under-methylated, under um, as I suspect you may be, are people who, and you said you were under-methylated, yeah. well, these are people who have a strong will, mm-hmm. and they tend to be perfectionistic. They tend to, they don't give up, and they're, they're competitive. Uh, we've learned that uh, most of the great athletes in the world are under-methylated. Most of the doctors are under-methylated. Most, um, most CEOs are under-methylated. They're, they're just sort of, they just have a natural, inborn drive to be very good at what they care about. Overmethylated people are the opposite. Overmethylated people are some of the nicest people in the world. If you wanted to have the, the perfect neighbor next door, you'd love to have an un- overmethylated person. Yes, they're prone to anxiety and depression, especially anxiety, but they they are they, they seem to care more. They have more empathy than other people, and a lot of them become nurses or they become volunteers, and they they seem to. Um, they're not, they're not competitive, and, and people who are under-methylated tend to be competitive. So I, I just showed you, given you maybe three or four examples, well, there are actually 30 different traits associated with under-methylation, and maybe another 25 with over-methylation. So it's a combination of the knowledge of the patient and then the blood testing, and that's how we diagnose methylation. Yeah, I think that's the way to go, is to look at their symptoms and their health conditions and form an assessment, then you use blood testing or hair analysis to just support that assumption that you have. And I believe I've done probably 10 times as many methylation evaluations as anybody else in the world. Yeah. 30,000 people we've evaluated this. So we've got to really know it. And it's so important to know. And the, the, the complication and the confusion, and some people think that there's a, uh, almost a, um, a disagreement between myself and other nutritionists there really isn't. It's just that uh, when it comes to mental illness, the person has a neurotransmitter problem, the, the, the use of folate, folate happens to have a dramatic, powerful epigenetic effect on, on neurotransmitter reuptake. Now, we used to think that the most important thing in depression, for example, was how much serotonin a person had. And so people were taking tryptophan or other nutrients that would enhance that. B6 is another one. And then even the pharmaceutical industry in the beginning was focused for about 15 years on finding ways to increase serotonin. And and for the, for example, they developed MAO inhibitors as a class of antidepressants. Yeah. And what they do is, is they simply increase the amount of serotonin. MAO is a chemical that in their synapses tends to uh, react with and, and basically eliminate some of the serotonin. So they put had this drug developed as an inhibitor, and that would increase serotonin levels. Well, in about the middle 80s, 1980s, the pharmaceutical industry and and university researchers learned that's not what the most important thing. The important thing is not how much serotonin you've got, but the thing called reuptake. The speed with which the the serotonin that's been sprayed into the synapse, the speed with which it returns to the original cell. That's what reuptake is. Well, the passageways, the way and the mechanism for it coming back into the cells are these proteins, these transfer proteins, and they're genetically expressed. And so they, that's when they developed 
Prozac and Paxil and Soloft and Serzone, that whole graft of SSRIs, what do they do? They quickly go into the brain and they disable those, those transport proteins, so they're, which inhibits reuptake. So they're serotonin reuptake inhibitors. Mm-hmm. However, we now know that methionine and SAMI are serotonin reuptake inhibitors. And normally with an undermethylated person, you wouldn't really want to give them SAMI and methionine unless their diet was really, you know, didn't provide enough of it, you would want to go with a folate and B12. But if you have, uh, if you've got a low serotonin person who might be uh, depressed, uh, you, 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 it's contraindicated just for that small group. Yeah. And so... And that seems to everybody. Yeah. So it's say just, someone, say there are, I have a lot of clients in various countries and they can't do histamine tests. Uh, they can't do what? Or they can't do histamine tests. Uh, the labs okay. don't have them, or what have they? Don't do that test, what have you? So, uh, or, or I mean, a, a whole blood histamine. So, if can you look at the absolute basophil count, which is found on a CBC to determine uh, methylation? Is that a marker of methylation? It is, but it has to be a special absolute basophil test. Um, Carl Pfeiffer and and his uh, chemist expert Dr. Solar developed a uh, um, a basophil test. That was just about as good as whole blood histamine, and but it required a special procedure and involved something called a calcium blue dye, which is not what LabCorp and Quest and other labs use. So it's it's an inexpensive and it's a good assay, and I, I wish there were labs that would do that because that would be nice to. What Pfeiffer used to do is he would do whole blood histamine, and he would also do a, a basophil analysis, and so we'd have two different readings for the same thing to determine whether a person needed. Methionine or would do better on folate. One thing we learned is that methyl and folate have opposite effects on mental diseases, mental illnesses. And the methyl to folate ratio is really important. I first reported that at the American Psychiatric Association, would you believe, 1994. And it was very clear, even though if you look at the methyl equation cycle, you would think that methyl and folate are, you would think one would support the other but not with respect to neurotransmission. That's the difference. Yeah. So Brain chemistry is different. Yeah. Yeah, so so say you have a whole blood histamine that's just outside the normal range of, say, 75, and okay. then, uh, you know, treat per your protocol. Um, will it correct to a functional level, or does one have to supplement around the issue for life? Okay, Um just want to say that if we find somebody with zinc deficiency and we treat them, their zinc will become normal. The blood level will become normal. If they have a copper overload, they'll become normal. If they have a pyro disorder, that will become normal. Methylation, histamine does not become normal. It's, it's a marker that identifies a person's methylation status. It's not a measure of how well you are. And, for example, we've had people with histamine levels as high as 150 who might have had suicidal depression and we treated them with our methylation therapy, our nutrient therapy, and they became completely well and could throw away their antidepressants, and yet their histamine level might still be over 100. Yeah. So it's, it's not a measure of how well you're doing. It's, it, and um, once you do histamine assays twice, if we, if we tested somebody twice, say we tested 75 the first time, and maybe 82 the second time, well then there's no need to ever test them again. Okay. You've got the diagnosis. And it's not a measure of how they're doing. So then you know they're under methylated and you have a roadmap for the right nutrient therapy. Okay. 
And so copper levels are known to lower histamine. So, and I know that you factored it. Hmm? What did you say? I'm sorry, I didn't hear you. Uh, copper levels are known to lower histamine. So, well, so say someone has a whole blood histamine of 30, uh, but is also copper toxic. Uh, does it the mean that... The copper the combination of copper and histamine imbalance is really, is really interesting. The, the, what, the probably the major recipe for paranoid schizophrenia, mm-hmm. the largest type, well, about half of all schizophrenics are what you would call paranoid schizophrenics, and they, they have auditory hallucinations and great paranoia, and they're very troubled. The Very often you see a combination of under-methylation, I'm sorry, over-methylation, over-methylation together with high copper levels. Yeah. The reason is that over-methylation is associated with really high uh, norepinephrine, and copper tends elevated copper tends to elevate. So you've got two different chemical imbalances that tend to cause this dramatic difference in GABA and, and norepinephrine are related, and so is the, the NMDA neurotransmitter system, and this really messes all of that up. And um, Now, undermethylated people tend to be, uh, I would say, about 80% of undermethylated people, like you and me, I'm also undermethylated, um, we tend to be low normal in copper, low normal in copper, and, and say serum copper. Occasionally, you find someone who is really high in copper who's undermethylated, and, and you need to address that. And that's why it's good to do lab work. But um, copper and, and methyl are, um, if a pers- you cannot really tell a person's methylation by looking at their, at their copper levels. There's just too many exceptions. Yeah. But- you have to step separately. Yeah, and so can't copper artificially lower the histamine level and make someone look perhaps like they're more of an undermethylator? And when you start to correct the copper toxicity, then perhaps their histamine levels can begin to go up. And is that why you need to retest to factor in any copper detox that may be happening that's pushing down that histamine level? Uh, not really. Uh, actually, copper does not have a massive effect on histamine. Okay. It really doesn't have a major effect. So that's not an issue. The real issue are if a person is taking Benadryl or antihistamines or, mm-hmm. or even a, a psychiatric medications that might have antihistamine uh, uh, capabilities, then that, that can really uh, affect your ability to use blood histamine as, as a marker. Okay, okay. But copper is not a big issue with that. Okay. And so, you know, you mentioned that undermethylators are suggested to eat limited folate. Um, does this also apply? Does this apply to supplements, or does it also apply to vegetables as well? See, I, I have to say that's not true of most undermethylators. Okay. It's only true of undermethylators who have a brain chemistry problem, and that's a fairly small percentage. Eighty or ninety percent of of of, the, of undermethylated people thrive on folic acid. They thrive on vegetables. They do. But if they have a tendency for low serotonin activity, they need to they need to be careful with that. Okay, so they need to be careful about eating the green leafy vegetables. It, it, because they're loaded with folate. Yeah. And folate has this powerful effect epigenetically that affects reuptake, it affects serotonin and dopamine reuptake. Yeah. Folic acid and and all the folates are wonderful serotonin reuptake promoters. They really enhance reuptake, but that's the last thing you want that a that a depressed person wants yeah. if they if they have low serotonin depression. We give folic acid to it's, it's the prime therapy for people who have a mental problem, 
but aren't overmethylated. That sounds counterintuitive, doesn't it? Because it's folic acid. And so what happens for them is their methylation gets a little bit worse, but their, their brain gets tremendously better. It's, it's, it's a bit counterintuitive. It's hard for people to get their arms around. But we have, we have a, 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 an advantage over everybody else. We know what the right answer is. And the reason we know what the right answer is is we've worked with thousands and thousands and thousands of cases of over and under methylation for mental, mental health. And, and we, know, we know what helps them and what doesn't. Yeah. If one were just to logically look at all the, all, all the biochemistry, I don't think you could be confident about you know, what would be good for a person or not. But we, we have this unfair advantage of knowing what helps and what doesn't help. And is your recommendation to avoid folate for under, under methylators with mental health issues or fairly severe mental health issues, is that only temporary until their symptoms improve? Um, everybody needs folate at some level. And uh, the, the, the ideal would be to be normalized in folate, to have just a normal, typical, healthy level. I think that's true of all nutrients. And, and in fact, all of our therapy, all of our, all of our treatment programs for everybody, uh, we don't have a treatment for depression. We don't have a treatment for schizophrenia. What we do is we'll take people who have a problem and we'll study and look for, and we'll study and try to identify what imbalances they have that are likely to affect, be affecting their brain function. And so what we do, we, we have a treatment for, for zinc deficiency. We have a treatment for undermethylation. Uh, for these people, we have a treatment for pyrrole disorder, but but it's all individual. So I think the key is to find out what a person's biochemical individuality is, and then with rifle shot precision, normalize their levels. We don't believe in giving massive doses of vitamins and minerals to people. No. We don't believe in multiple vitamins, because uh, one of the surprises that we learned early was that, that inborn, innate, tendency for nutrient overloads can cause more mischief than deficiencies. Mm-hmm. And, and people tend to think about deficiencies. And and there are there are a lot of nutritionists who simply try to try to, you know, add the question is what what nutrients do they need? Well in some cases the question is what nutrients do they need to reduce? Mm-hmm. And that was a big surprise to me when we started clinical work. I, I had no idea that was the case. But I learned that it was true. And so for, so, for overmethylators, uh, why do you prefer folic acid over folinic acid? I don't. I think folinic acid works a little better, and I think methylfolate works best of all. Okay. But uh, folinic acid and, and methylfolate, uh, also known as deplin, um, they, they are somewhat better, but they're not as much better as people think. And the reason is they are what I call suicidal nutrients. And the reason is these, these methylation cycles constantly spinning and spinning and spinning. There's more than a million methylation reactions every second. So the, it's like the Indianapolis Speedway, and, and if you look at that methylation cycle, and the first time that methylfolate or folinic acid reacts, it loses its identity. It becomes garden variety THF and part of the problem. So it's, it's again, I call it a suicidal nutrient. I'm not saying it's bad. It's a, it's a bit. And if a person has a 677 homozygous, um, it, it it might significantly help them compared to other forms of folic acid, yeah. the folates. Okay. But all the folates have the same impact. They all become THF 
they all and they, and they all have the same epigenetic negative effect on serotonin reuptake. Okay. And so, what do you take if you have an expressing MTHFR and are an overmethylator, since MTHFRs are told to avoid folic acid? Well, it, my my focus is not on physical health; it's on mental health. And so I, after doing um, a medical history and getting the lab results, what we really focus on are what neurotransmitter systems are, have gone awry. Do we have too little serotonin activity? Do we have too much dopamine activity, which is what you get in panic disorders and, and, and a lot of anxiety disorders? Um, and, and then we just act accordingly. We, we give a nutrient program aimed at really normalizing brain function and neurotransmission neurotransmission okay well i have a few questions now for my listeners that were really really excited that you're coming on the show so they're a bit random um if you have a, a whole blood histamine that is just outside the functional range um will it permanently oh sorry i, I asked that question already um do you have any advice for under methylators with a history of miscarriage who want to get pregnant and whose blood tests show that they're deficient and RBC folate, folinic acid, and other folate factors. Probably the leading reason for uh, for that person for having miscarriages is that they were folate deficient, and they needed folate. They needed to have some supplementation of folates. Yeah. Yeah, would be told. Yeah. Okay. A, a woman about to have a child, about to get pregnant, um, before they get pregnant, needs to make sure that they're not folate deficient. They must. Otherwise, the, the child's they're likely to get a, 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 a miscarriage, which is nature's way of taking a baby that's got some deformities and, and, and not allowing it to live. Or they might have spinal, spinal bifida or other, other problems. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. And the nasty part is, I know a lot of people that when a woman gets pregnant, she says that she just wants to protect that baby and they'll, they'll start to stop smoking and they won't, maybe they'll stop any alcohol and they'll have a great diet do more exercise, do all these healthy things. Problem is, it's too late because most of the most of the this epigenetic placement of these of these methyl bookmarks happens between day eighteen and day twenty two of gestation, before they're even pregnant. So the the major harm from not having enough folate or, or not or, or harm from from maybe toxics or from a poor diet, it's it's too late. Um, unless they unless they find out they're pregnant really early. Yeah. Um, so they, I think that people of childbearing age, women of childbearing age, need to to do this before they're pregnant. Yeah. So let's talk a little bit about hair mineral analysis. One of my favorite subjects. Um, you well, talk. Wow, I've probably done more of that. At one time, I was told by doctors data that they thought I did more of that than anybody in the world. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, well, you Sorry talk... For criminals. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, so you talk about specific hair patterns uh, with regards to malabsorption in sociopaths. Um, can you explain uh, specifically the hair patterns that you'll see in sociopaths? You established they've got mercury yes. and cadmium and lead toxicity. Uh, what about... not toxins, unless they live in Hawaii and aren't exposed. Yeah. Uh, they they tend they tend to be elevated in toxics, and but the, the key is they tend to be very low in copper, and they're sky high in sodium and potassium. Yeah. And that's 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 the basic pattern for them. Now most people with a behavior disorder, say with 
people who have a psychiatrist would say have episodic rage disorder. People who have a nice personality and they're sweet people and they have a terrible temper and they're sort of a volcano going off. We all know some people like that. Uh, they tend to have the opposite pattern. They tend to have really high copper levels, uh, major copper to zinc ratio, and low sodium capacity. The sociopaths also tend to have really high calcium magnesium levels in hair, but that's associated with deficiency. There are three, as you probably do a lot of hair analysis by now, I'm sure you know, there are three elements in hair that if it's sky high, it means deficiency in blood. Yeah. Zinc, calcium, magnesium. If you get a, a result where the zinc is sky high, it usually correlates with low blood levels. And the reason is that hair is an excretory tissue. It's a little disgusting that you can think of it as solid urine, right? And basically, um, zinc, uh, most of the zinc leaving your body, and some enters and leaves your body every day, most of it leaves through your bile and, and stool. However, if you have a, uh, if you have something metabolic problem, maybe pyrrole disorder or something else, uh, and, and uh, you get too much zinc leaving, uh, you, you have high levels in your urine, high levels in your hair, and your blood levels would be very low. So you'd be zinc deficient, and the reason is that you'd have too much of it leaving where it's not supposed to leave. I think of, think of it like a hole in the bucket, and, and, and the zinc is, is, is being lost instead of being regenerated and conserved. But I find hair analysis very valuable for, for malabsorption because they tend to be low in everything. You've, you've probably seen, the, seen these results where you find people that are low in virtually everything. Yeah. And, and uh, that, that correlates really nicely with malabsorption. Yeah. Yeah, and in uh, cancer patients as well, they tend to have malabsorption and therefore yeah. severe mineral deficiencies, severe immunocompromised, and eventually develop cancer and other chronic illnesses. And we now know that most cancers are epigenetic, which is something they just learned in the last five or ten years. And all the new research seems to be focused on finding what, what genes are now expressing well. What cancer protection genes uh, are now shut off because of an environmental insult that caused this this um, valuable protein to stop being produced? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So you tested a lot of, of sociopaths, including Charles Manson. Um, Charles Manson, yeah. was Richard Speck, uh, Henry Lee Lucas, who um, um, confessed to, to killing three hundred and sixty people. Uh, we, we've done the, the, the post office slayer, the Patrick Sherrill, who before going postal, well, was, he was the guy that came to work one day with his mailbag full of guns and shot and killed 17 people. Mm-hmm. I, I've been involved in a lot of um, a lot of forensic studies. And uh, my first one was James Oliver Huberty. You're probably too young to remember that one. He's the guy that went into McDonald's in the early 1980s and shot and killed 23 people. Mm-hmm. And the, the next day, uh, I got a call from the coroner, and they asked me if I would participate in the, in the, in the, in the study, trying to understand in the biochemistry, trying to understand why he might have done this. Yeah. And uh, so they sent me some body parts, and they sent me a hair sample, for example. And we found that he was incredibly high in cadmium, and also quite high in zinc. He also had a mild type B sociopathic pattern but nothing that would make me think he would go and kill 23 people. Yeah. So um, I sent my, my confidential report back to the coroner of San Diego County, and then I got a call back a week later, and they said, well, we've been testing him, uh, and everything about him is normal. We can't find anything abnormal. He didn't have a brain tumor. 
and every other test has come back normally, so is of yours. And we got a question, if he had this much cadmium in his body, why wasn't he dead? Because cadmium is a really nasty, maybe one of the nastiest of the plastic metals, and it, it goes to your kidneys, it, it collects the tubules of your kidney, and cause, causes kidney failure and death. And that causes high sodium and potassium as well. So um, I said, I have no, I don't know. And but then he called, the same guy called me back. He was a doctor on the staff. About three weeks later, I said, we've learned some interesting things. I just wanted to know that we found out that Huberty uh, was a welder for 17 years in Ohio, working for Babcock and Wilcox. And when he quit his job recently, in his exit interview, he wrote in his own handwriting, he was quitting because he felt the fumes were making him crazy. Oh. And cadmium is one of the one of the, one of the toxins you can get from that. And he said, and, and he said also, we found out that he was at the emergency room of a hospital twice in the last six weeks before he did the killings, both times with kidney failure. Mm. Yeah. So uh, that eventually they published that and it made news throughout the world. And for about the next twenty years, every time there was some horrible crime, I would be invited to the autopsy. And then, mm. I've done many of them, working with medical examiners, Scotland Yard, the FBI, uh, San Francisco Depart- Police Department. I've done a lot of a lot of that, and I and even though these are gruesome cases, cases where things where terrible things happen, it, it I always wanted to get the samples of somebody like a Charles Manson, because it, the imbalances are so sharp and so clear and so pronounced. Yeah. It's, it's good for science. Yeah, and the people that smoke marijuana and cigarettes, uh, these are also substances that are very high in cadmium, and people develop cadmium toxicity from smoking them. Um, is it really uh, a lot of people doing that? But is it uh, to become a sociopath? Is it really a matter of them not being able to excrete these toxins? Sociopaths are born. Yeah, not, they're born, and they uh, and these are the kids who uh, who even at the age of uh, six months. The mother knows is different. Well, maybe my question is more that, that the sociopathy expresses as criminal behavior um, with cadmium toxicity. Well, they, they, part of their condition is an inability to get rid of cadmium and mercury mm-hmm. and lead. They're high in all of those. And, and so it's just part of their inborn condition. Yeah. And it aggravates everything, of course. Uh, it's, I don't think it's the main reason they're sociopaths. Yeah. It's just the... Uh, Carl Pfeiffer found the sociopaths had a, I, I, the first group I brought him were five people fresh out of prison who had done some really terrible things, and they all had the anti-social personality or the sociopathic pattern. We took a plane to, to Newark, we went to the Princeton to see the great man to see Carl Pfeiffer. This is the first group I ever sent him, and um, he found out that they all had extreme zinc deficiency. They all had elevated pyrroles. They were all very undermethylated. They had low blood sperming. He found this combination of five or six imbalances, and he said they're all the same. He was excited. He said they're all the same, and and it's still it's held up uh, over the years. People that have antisocial personality disorder, and they tend to populate the prisons. They're born that way, and and the saddest cases are wonderful families that adopt a lot of children. Um, they, if they adopt someone with that inborn tendency, it can just be heartbreaking. And I've had a number of, the, of these wonderful parents that, that might be adopting five or 10 or 15 handicapped or troubled children. Uh, I've had cases where they would bring me a child and they said, well, if you can't fix this person, we're going to have to give them back. 
and and I, I've talked to mothers who had um, mothers of people who were criminals that we worked with as ex-offenders, um, and they um, the mothers one mother told me how she tried to cuddle the baby and push away. Mm. Another mother said that when she tried to uh, start the child on solid food and try to get and use a spoon, the child wouldn't let her do it. Would have to grab the spoon and do it himself. Kids who uh, at the age of um, maybe year and a half started torturing and tormenting pets in yeah. the family. I met one mother who said that uh, her, um, her two-year-old, two she heard the dog screaming and she found him sticking a needle in mm. the dog. She said, well, why did you do that? And he said, I just wanted to see how loud he could scream. Mm. And they had fascination with fire and all these nasty things. It, they're, they're born. And um, now the imbalances can be mild, moderate, and severe. So if they're mild, a person has a mild tendency for that kind of activity, and they're in a loving, caring home, and they have resources, maybe counseling, it might turn out fine. But if, if they are born with severe imbalances, uh, I don't, you can't love it away, yeah. and, and uh, it's going to just be a heartbreak for the family. Yeah. And so one thing I learned with all my work with 18 years of working with ex-convicts, um, I learned that the, family, the parents of a criminal are very often a parent with a broken heart. And many of them did everything they could to help this child, and they couldn't. Yeah. But we can fix them if we get them young. Yeah. That's another thing that got us excited. Well, Dr. Walsh, I have a question I like to ask all of my guests. What do you yeah. think is the most pressing health issue in the world today? Well, throughout the world, if you, include, uh, if you include Africa and all these undeveloped countries, I think it has to do with food and water. Mm -hmm. I think their nutrition is, is, is a terrible problem. And, and, uh, and even the ability to have decent water, uh, that, that's such a basic, but I think that's, that's probably number one. Um, and in and, and, and developed countries like the United States and Europe and, and not recently China, our environment's getting worse and worse and worse. So the need for, for wonderful nutrition is just increasing. You know, our, our environment is definitely getting worse and worse. Yeah. Yeah, and I personally believe that diet alone is not enough. I mean, it's definitely important. It's a foundation. But today we are so toxic and so stressed. It's simply not enough. Uh, people need targeted nutrient therapy in order to be healthy, I believe. I think that's right. I think, I think it would help everybody uh, if they would find out who they were biochemically, find out what nutrients they're deficient in mm -hmm. and which ones they're overloaded in. And if we were to test almost anyone at random, you would probably find the five or six important nutrients that because of genetics, they were very low in. Yeah. And you would find that maybe there'd be two or three that they were elevated in and they need to avoid like poison. And, and it would be so helpful if a person knew who they were biochemically. Now, I got lucky when I brought my first group of five uh, criminals to Pfeiffer he forced me to go through the testing myself. I didn't want to do it. I don't like blood drugs. But he, <laughs> he did it, and he, he told me what my chemistry was. And it's been wonderful for me. I found out that I'm very zinc deficient. Most people get all the zinc they need from the diet. I, I take 100 milligrams a day, and it's just barely enough to make my blood normal. I found I was undermethylated. So he gave me his treatment for undermethylation, which, in, in his case, included methionine. And, and since I've done that, I used to have migraine headaches that were terrible. 
and they've been gone ever since. I also used to have seasonal allergies, and they're no longer present. Um, so it, I think everybody would benefit if they knew how to do that, and you can get a lot of information just in a questionnaire. I was talking to a, a well-known pharmacist who's, who's um, quite famous and has won awards for, for nutritional combinations and, and products, and um, he, uh, we were talking about possibly developing a system for the general population, not, not sick people, but the general population, where using a very carefully designed um, questionnaire, asking key questions, plus perhaps uh, maybe $50 worth of testing, perhaps, I think I think I'd like to do this maybe with genetic testing. Then we could we could tell a person what what um, the ideal supplement would be for them. And so then maybe people can actually take a multiple vitamin and have it really help them. I don't think I don't think many people benefit that much from multiple vitamins. Yeah. And uh, unless they're malabsorbers, unless they're low kind of low on everything, people constantly are asking me uh, what are good vitamins. Uh, you know, so many different kinds of vitamins and, and, and you know, of products, and, and the answer is um, depends on the person. Yeah. Depends, on, depends on your chemistry. Is this right for you? Or maybe not. Yeah. Yeah, it's all about individual biochemistry. Absolutely. Yeah. And it was a great Roger Williams back in the late 1940s who, who first made the world aware of biochemical individuality and that the best diet and the best nutrients for one person are not the best for the next person. Yeah, yeah. Great man. Well, Dr. Walsh, can you tell the listeners where they can find you and learn more about the Walsh Institute? Well, we have a website. It's walshinstitute.org. And if you were to just simply Google Walsh Institute or Walsh Research Institute, uh, you'll, you'll get to our website and you'll get a lot of information. Another thing is uh, uh, a lot of people buy the book that we that I wrote. It's only fifteen bucks, um, and you can get it either. You can get it at, um, at, at at bookstores. You can get it at Barnes and Noble. You can get it at Amazon. Uh, but if, if at roughly the same price, and you get it from our website, then the profits will go into our charity and and help finance our, our charitable work. Yeah. But I think the book the book covers uh, the basics of everything I've talked about tonight. Yeah. It summarizes all of that. It summarizes um, the, how, how nutrients are involved in, in making neurotransmitters. It talks about the epigenetics, which is kind of a complicated thing. And, and, and it also talks specifically about the various problems, behavior disorders, ADHD, even dementia, anxiety, depression, schizophrenia. Yeah. And, um, and, and so people have those problems or loved ones with those problems. I think they can learn a lot from that. And that would be a beginning. It would be a start. We also have on our website and in the book, we have a resources section where we indicate labs that we know are good labs, and we and we have a long and a, and a growing list of doctors who we have worked with and trained that we know are that are doing this kind of work. And they're scattered throughout the USA already. Yeah, so listeners, go there if you want to find a practitioner that knows how to do uh, Dr. Walsh's protocol. And Dr. Walsh, thank you so much for coming on the show. I really appreciate it. Thank you, Wendy. Thank you. Yeah, and listeners, if you want to learn more about me, you can go to live2110.com. You can learn all about my health protocol, uh, my health, online health program, bodybiorehab.com, and learn all about my healing and detox program at mineralpower.com. 
Thank you so much for listening to the Live to 110 podcast.